Okay, everyone's at John chapter 14, okay? We're not going to be doing a lot of... We're going to stick to that passage, unlike last week where we were popping around quite a bit. Well, welcome Genesis House. Why don't we stand and read John 14, uh, verses 1 to 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are grateful for the words recorded by John here about you. He wrote them 2,000 years ago, and they still are totally relevant to us today in our culture and in our own lives. And we are looking forward to seeing how these truths pertain to us and how they pertain to those around us. And although uh, we believe that you're the only way to the Father, the world doesn't believe that. And Satan's done a great job of deceiving people. So our, our goal today, Lord, is to discover your truths to us and to uh, look what, heaven, what heaven's going to be like for us and, uh, and the hopes that we have in you and that we are, have a future kingdom in which we can come to and be excited about. We uh, look forward to our time together. And uh, always for the discussion after, and I pray today's a time of encouragement. If we're going through any stresses or worries, that we can just lay them at your feet today as we uh, go through your scripture. Thank you for your word and for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen. I put my coffee on the right-hand side today because it seemed to be a hand flapper on the left-hand side. I put it low as well. Well, in the opening scene of verse 1, Jesus tells his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Those of us in the church are familiar with this word. Um, it's a, a word that has recurred a few times already now in, in John. And this is a refresher for you, but the word here, troubled, is the Greek word terasso, which means to stir or shake up or emotionally to be deeply agitated or under great distress. And we've always seen this word in relationship to Jesus so far. Uh, you remember um, when Jesus saw the Jews weeping at Lazarus' funeral? He was troubled and deeply agitated over their lack of faith and belief in him. Uh, we saw um, in John 12, 27, when he was faced with the cross, Jesus was troubled once again because of this, uh, this, this uh, pull in him to want not to go to the cross because of the anxiety that was going to, all the emotional anxiety and distress around the cross. We saw him also in 1321, troubled over Judas because he was going to be betrayed by him. So we always see Tarasso, this word troubled, this idea of being distressed in relationship to Jesus. But this time we have the disciples now being the ones who are Tarassoed or troubled in this way. So the question is, why here? And why now? Well, it was a joyous occasion in Jerusalem, and it was a Passover. 
the whole city was in party mode and celebration mode as they remembered God's release of their nation from Israel. And yet here the disciples were, in, in, in contrast to the people around them, not in a state of celebration, but in a state of worry. Well, the reason was is all their hopes and dreams concerning Jesus as Israel's Messiah were coming crashing down around them. You see, over the course of the three years, as you well know, they followed Jesus. They, they'd embraced him as this idea of him being the king of Israel and being their Messiah. I mean, they even became their, their, his right-hand men in belief that he was going to become king and they would take positions of power alongside of him. So they were looking forward to, to Jesus as having this rule within Israel. And at the triumphant entry about a week earlier, when Jesus came in, everything looked good. I mean, the people had embraced him saying, Hosanna, and they were calling him Savior, and they were waving palm branches. And so the disciples are thinking, man, this is coming to, coming to fruition. We are excited and totally like, jacked about this. But the problem was, is that in the last seven days or so, Jesus began to unravel their expectations about him. You see, at the Last Supper, he's already told them that within the twelve, one of them was going to betray, betray him and ditch him. He had just told Peter in verse 38 in chapter 13 that he was going to deny him three times. So there was going to be mutiny within the discipleship, the disciples, and uh, this was troubling to them because this had never happened before. But furthermore, Jesus on two separate occasions since his triumphant entry had spoken about the fact that he was going to die. He told them, as the Messiah, I'm going to die. Now this is super worrisome talk for them because all of them had left their previous jobs and families for three years to give up everything to follow Jesus. And now it seemed like Jesus was giving up on them. Like he was going to abandon them and permanently leave them stranded. So these guys were on an emotional roller coaster and they were troubled by the state that they were facing. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing their fears and anxieties, and what was going on inside them, recognized then the need to reassure them. He had to bring reassurance to them and bring comfort to them in times of stress. So the first thing I want you to notice about what Jesus did with the disciples in the midst of their fears was call them to a deeper level of trust. You see that in verse 1. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, but believe in God and believe in me. You can, you can substitute the word trust and believe here. They would work interchangeably. Now, if you're a disciple, that might sound like a strange uh, request from Jesus. Hadn't you already shown them that you trusted them? Like I said earlier, you'd given up your whole life. Uh, in the last three years, left your jobs to show him loyalty. Not only that, other disciples who had been part of the ministry had already fled and left when he would teach certain truths that you didn't like. And here the disciples had stuck with them right to the bitter end. And to trust God? I mean, come on, they were, they were Israelites. They were Jewish. Who else were they going to trust? I mean, sure, they had records of idolatry in their past, but these 12 disciples had been faithful. Their, their, the object of their faith was God. I mean, it was, I mean, it was so much so that, um, you know, Jews in that day were often seen as atheists. The, the, the pagan idolatrous nations around them considered them to be atheists because how dare you only believe in one God? In our culture, we, just, we define atheists as having belief in no God. In a Jewish culture in their day, to be an atheist was to only believe in one God. 
So again, for Jesus to then call to them to believe in God was a strange thing for them. Of course they did. They were Jewish. So what did Jesus mean by believe in God and believe in me? Well, these guys hadn't faced this level of personal crisis before. They'd never been troubled to this extent in three years. So Jesus was asking them to trust to an even greater level, one that was equivalent to the level of crisis. And his command for them to believe in God um, is of great significance, maybe greater than we foresee. You see, by Jesus saying to them to believe in God and to believe in him also, was placing himself on power, par with God as their object of faith. You see that? He's placing himself on par with God as their object of faith. Believe in God, believe also in me. So faith in, in God was not something, sorry, faith in him was not something additional to faith in God. It was the same as having faith in God. And they were to trust in him in the midst of crisis. Again, important words considering the anxiety and fears that they were going through. Because at that time, they're kind of wondering about Jesus. Is he trustworthy? You know, to the same degree as we thought so. He's not going to be the Messiah we expected. And Jesus' words of comfort are, don't worry. You can have a faith in me despite the, what's happening around you. To the same degree as you'd have faith in God. We're in this together. Now, although he called them to trust, he wasn't going to call them to trust without promises. There's promises going to be given to these men if they trusted in him to this degree. And the first promise was to come from the Father. And the first promise is found in verse 2, which is the hope of heaven. Read, read with me here. It says, In my Father's house are many dwellings, dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The first thing I want you to notice about heaven here is the amount of room in heaven. How much vacancy there is. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, right? So, you know, when we go, sometimes Denise and I are driven, like, you know, down streets late at night, say, uh, like in, the, in a new city or something. If we hadn't had like, a hotel reservation, we'd look for the hotels with no vacancy signs, right? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, you would look for once without the no vacancy signs, right? And so we don't want to see that because that means there's no room for you. Well, Jesus is ultimately saying to these guys, listen, there are many dwellings. There's lots of room in heaven. And the Father has a place already prepared for you. And he wanted them to know that, as a, that God as a loving Father had a promise. And that was guaranteed lodging for them and anyone who had placed their faith in him. Of course, the disciples were included in this. And they could take comfort in that. Now what's interesting is Jesus here makes no other real mention of what heaven was going to be like. He just talked about heaven in terms of the vacancy available. And as I thought about this, I, I realized we've been at a, in the church plant for about four years now. And uh, we've never talked about heaven. We talked about going to heaven and what it takes to get there. We've actually never physically talked about what heaven's going to be like. And I thought... Since he talks about many dwelling places and that there's room in heaven for us as believers, I thought, why don't I talk to you a little bit about what that's going to be like for us as well. <coughs> Let's talk first about the measurements and the construction of it. What's interesting is heaven has fixed boundaries. It's got fixed boundaries. 
Look at this in Revelation 21, 16. Um, the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Well, if, you, if you think about that, it's a cube. It's a big uh, cube. If it's 1,500 miles in base, length, and height, it's a box. Now what's cool is, if you remember the tabernacle studies that we did, the tabernacle was 15 cubits, and a cubit was about 18 inches, in width, height, and, and depth. Now, the Holy of Holies that no one could enter except the high priest once a year is 15 cubits. Heaven is 1,500 miles. The exact dimensions of the tabernacle Holy of Holies is the exact dimensions of heaven in terms of the 15. But he goes from 15 cubits to 1,500 miles. Pretty cool. It's not a coincidence that God built the tabernacle 15 by 15 by 15. <laughs> Really neat, eh? Um, now, I did the math on this. It's over 2 million square miles at its base. 1,500 times 1,500 is over 2 million square miles. That's more than half the size of the United States. So take half the USA in width, height, and depth, and you have heaven as fixed boundaries. Its walls, according to Revelation, are 70 meters thick. The walls of heaven are 70 meters thick. All right? And within the walls are 12 gates and 12 foundations. There's three gates on the north and three foundations on the north, south, east, and west. And these walls and foundations are made out of precious and costly stones. The walls are made out of jasper and the gates and foundations and things are made out of sapphire, emerald, pearl, topaz, all these wonderful, beautiful stones. And the city itself is constructed from pure gold. So that's the kind of like the construction and measurements of heaven. What about the, the scenery? What's the environment going to be like? Well, the curse that, was in the, that happened in the Garden of Eden will be completely reversed. In Revelation 22, verse 1, it tells us that the Garden of Eden is restored. There'll be a river of water of life flowing freely through the city, and the tree of life, which Adam and Eve were commanded not to eat from, will be there again, yielding fruit monthly for us to eat. So the diet will be amazing. We'll have the same kind of nutrition as we did the way it was intended for back on day one of creation. No meat, no steaks. No, nope. <laughs> won't be necessary, yeah. <laughs> no curry, Pat, no curry. Yeah, this is not a prom prom uh, promotional sermon for vegetarianism, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. Revelation 22 tells us, uh, outside of like what the food is going to be like in this and what, what not, is how the heaven is going to be lit. So right now the world is lit by the sun and the moon, and that controls our light and dark cycles. In heaven there's no sun, no moon. The glory of God will consume the, the cube, and light will be, come from his radiance. And in the Old Testament they call it the Shekinah glory. Remember the Shekinah glory would come down and dwell in the tabernacle? Well, the Shekinah glory is going to fill, uh, fill heaven, and there'll be permanent light. There'll be no darkness. Probably the most, one of the most exciting parts for us will be the curse on humanity will be gone. It'll be the place of no mores. In Revelation 21, verse 4, there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. So all the emotional pain that you've experienced or are experiencing now from broken relationships and, and different things going on, completely wiped out. 
all the physical pain and health issues that you're facing as a church, completely gone, you'll be fully restored. And again, because the curse is defeated by Jesus Christ and His resurrection, death will have no power over us, we'll be immortal and live forever. Now much more could be said about heaven, but you can see why, in Paul, why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 declared that heaven has, was so majestic that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, or has entered into the heart of, of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is Paul's polite way of saying, heaven is simply built beyond your ability as a human to possibly comprehend. I mean, you think about this, like you go outside and you look at how beautiful the prairies and mountains are, and you think, wow, how majestic is it to look at this? And you're going to have a city made of pure gold. And every stone will be like pearl, jasper, and it'll be as clear as glass. It'll be absolutely unbelievable. And the food and the relationships and all the physical and emotional <coughs> stuff will be completely freed in Jesus Christ. Now, these are the promises just from God. God's promise was this house with, a, with many dwelling places in which each believer will have a room. But Jesus had promises of his own. And we'll pick up these here now in verse 2. So even though God had provided lodging for all those who loved him, it was Jesus' job to prepare the room for lodging. See that in verse 2? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Again, God is the one who made the home, but Jesus is the one who prepares the home. Now, if I were to ask you, like in your house, if you had people coming over to stay with you, how would you get it prepared? You'd probably say, well, you know, we'd, we'd work the cleaning it up. Um, we'd, you know, take some disinfectants. We'd get some wipes out. We'd vacuum. We'd put new sheets on the beds and, we'd, or, you know, and so on and so forth. Your preparations would be all work that you had to do. Well, think about how Jesus prepared the rooms for these guys. How did Jesus prepare a room for you and I in heaven and the disciples? He did it through death. He did it through his death and resurrection. So we would often pay for our rooms by a financial compensation. Jesus paid for the room in heaven for us through the blood on the cross. The way he prepared the room was through death and the shedding of blood. And here's the irony about this. The disciples' troublesome state is what? Jesus, you're going to leave. We don't want you to go. You're going to abandon us, forsake us. We're going to be left here all alone. And Jesus says, don't worry, guys. I have to go. Because if, if I don't go, and I don't depart, and I don't pay for your room, you're not going to get that room anyway. So I have to go. The very thing you don't want me to do is the thing I have to do, because without it, you're not going to go to heaven. There's no hope for you apart from me leaving you now. And again, they didn't understand this at the time, but these would be words of comfort to them later on in their, min in their ministry, in their lives. The second promise that Jesus gave them was not only was he going to prepare rooms, he was actually going to escort them to the rooms. He's going to bring them there. Look at verse 3 and 4. If I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may uh, be also. Now the event of uh, him coming to bring them to the rooms and escort them there, of course, is, uh, has to do with end times. And I want to just talk to you about a couple observations that you should not miss in this, in this verse. First of all, notice how he's going to come. He's going to come in what way? Personally. And he's coming personally in 3A. Uh, three, I call it 3A. 3A means 
the first half of verse 3. Okay? <laughs> that's, my, that's the pastor's way of making sense of a verse. Okay? So 3b is the second half of verse 3. <laughs> so 3a, if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself. It's all personal here. This is Jesus coming. He's not coming with any assistance. He doesn't need any outside help to bring people to glory. There's no army of angels. There's no church. There's nothing. So the millions of people throughout history who have died are single-handedly going to come and get or be escorted to heaven through Jesus Christ alone. He has the power personally to do that in and of himself. Notice also when he was going to come. Again, in verse 3, he's, verse three, he talks about a future event. He says, I will come again and receive you. Now, when will this happen? The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, no one knows exactly when the second coming is, is going to occur. However, we are told in the scriptures to read the signs of the times. And those of us who have we've done a little bit of revelation, kind of Daniel studies in our church in the past, uh, we know that we're in the end times and uh, we, we, we are told by the scriptures to look at the scriptures to see what kind of events are happening in our world to be able to decipher at least an approximation when Jesus is coming back. And I can confidently tell you as your pastor that he is coming back very soon and we are in the last times. There is there's very little to happen before he actually returns for us. Now that's, so we don't know when he's going to come, but we do know what it's going to look like when he does. And I want you to just quickly look at this verse with me. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. He says, uh, he t this is Paul speaking to Thessalonican church, who thought that they had missed uh, the opportunity to go to heaven because some people in the church had died. And uh, they thought because they died before Jesus had come back that they weren't going to go to heaven. And so Paul had to write to them and say, don't worry, even though you've died, you won't miss Jesus' return. He'll still bring you up there. Here's what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, which means death, by the way, uh, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have been fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will, in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So you see the order? Those who have died uh, will ascend to heaven before those who are still alive. So when Jesus comes back, there will be Christians in this world who are alive. We could very well be those people. So here we are, we're alive living this, in this world. What will happen is those of you who have grandmas and grandpas and, and great-grandmas and grandpas who have died as Christians, they, when Jesus comes back, will go to heaven first. They will be caught up into the clouds with Christ and he'll bring them to glory then we will rise second after that. So again, he's telling the church in Thessalonica, don't worry, not only, not only have your people not been missed to have died, they actually go first. All right? So when Jesus comes back, as he says in John 14, verse uh, 3, and he comes again to receive you, him to our, uh, us to himself, that's the order in which things are going to occur. But it's a future event. Now, I find it interesting that Paul says to the Thessalonican church, comfort one another with these words. 
Because that's exactly what Jesus was doing with the disciples. What's he doing? He's comforting with these words. You guys, your biggest fear is I'm leaving you permanently. But I'm telling you, I'm coming back and take comfort in that. But there's one final promise that Jesus made these guys. And that, this is the most important promise that's in this, in this passage, in my opinion. See, we've talked about heaven and how, the, how, how beautiful it will be in terms of relationships with one, say, with, or sorry, the, the physical pains are going to escape and the, and the kind of food we're going to eat and the beauty of the city. But to just focus on that is to miss the point of heaven. It's to miss it. And I like what Joe Donjel said. The central hope of heaven was not real estate, but relationship. Right? The central hope of heaven is not real estate, but relationship. And Jesus tells his disciples this. Look in verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, heaven's not about what we're going to experience, but who we're going to experience when we get there. And, I, and I'm not making fun of anybody here when I say this, because I have to throw myself in the same boat to some degree. But when you hear Christians speak in this way, I can't wait to go to heaven. Why? I can't wait to see my dad again. Or I can't wait to see my mom again. Or I hope my dog is there. <laughs> right? Come on. Um, or I want to escape the pains of this world. I get it. But if, you, if that's really why you want to go to heaven as a Christian... You've missed the point of heaven. Jesus says, where I am, there will you be also. Again, the whole focus is relationship with God once again in glory. He, that relationship will supersede any relationship you have here on earth. And if you, like me in times, have ever thought of heaven outside of that, then we need to reshape our thinking as Christians of what heaven's about and why we're, why we're going there. Listen, he said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Your mom and dad didn't prepare a place for you in heaven. Your grandpa didn't pay a place for you in heaven. Your church didn't prepare a place for you in heaven. None of us paid, paid for the rooms with our own blood. Jesus Christ did. So why in the heck would it not be the most important feature of heaven to be in relationship with the one who paid the ransom for our room? So, the disciples get uh, words of comfort from Jesus, so they clearly would have picked up on what he meant, right? Well, sadly, no. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Right? you got to love the disciples. Right to the bitter end, right to the bitter end after three years, no smarter than they were uh, three years prior. There's hope for us yet. <laughs> But anyway, so what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus told the disciples, He was the only and exclusive way a person could enter heaven. Buddha wasn't the way. Allah wasn't the way. Being baptized wasn't the way. Wearing crystals around your neck wasn't the way. Arriving at some kind of state of positive thinking or consciousness wasn't the way. Taking communion wasn't the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now as Christians in here today, 
We believe this, and the truth about Jesus being the only exclusive way to the Father is something that we accept. But our culture will not accept that truth. And the way, and when Okotoks, you try declaring that, and you're going to get rejected virtually every time. So I want to spend time with you, helping you walk through this, this issue. One of the toughest, uh, for me anyway, one of the toughest um, questions and accusations that I've ever, ha- ever, hard, ever had a hard time dealing with uh, in the last couple of years has been defending against this notion that I'm intolerant and I'm judgmental because I believe that Jesus is the only way to glory. That's been basically a tough question for me. If I was to say, yeah, but Jesus is the only way to heaven, they say, what kind of intolerant person are you? How judgmental are you to think that way? Because don't all religions claim to, aren't all religions equal in their ability to get to know who God is and to go to heaven? And this attitude towards me that I was extremely arrogant and uh, to think that only Christianity was a possible way to the the Father. Now I have to admit that's a very hard question for me to answer in the past. Because I did feel, when I was told that, I did feel like I was intolerant and judgmental. Because I was uh, claiming that there is only one way. Now I'm not sure if you've worked out in your head a way of answering that question. Like what if somebody said this to you? Well, you're, you know what? You claim Jesus is the only way? Well, how dare you? Like, how come you're so judgmental to think that no other faith out there could be possibly true? Like, just think about that. Well, how would you answer just like that in the line at Tim Hortons or with your uncle across the table? What's your answer going to be? I, mean, I don't know if you've ever worked it out in your head. So I'm going to give you two different defenses to, to, uh, that, I've come, that I've sort of worked through in my own head as a fast way of answering to that question. This is not limited, like this is not the be-all and end-all, these are just two fast answers and uh, they are, there's a lot more that could be said, but they're just quick. Uh, I want to give you two possible ways of thinking. First of all, it's not only Christianity that claims to be the exclusive source of truth. So the accusation is this, you're judgmental thinking you're the only way. The truth of the matter is every single religious system out there believes they're the only source of truth. So that, that, that hopefully that will help. See, all religions believe that they have the right pathway to eternal life. The Hindus believe that. The Buddhists believe that. The Islamic people believe that. The Roman Catholics believe that. The Mormons believe that. The JWs believe that. They all believe they're the only ones that are correct. Atheists who claim no belief in God also believe they're the only source in truth. So one of the defenses that I want to recommend to you, that you can use in a a very uh, enlightening way, is to say, you know what, I know you realize it sounds like this, but just so you know, every single human being in the world believes in exclusive truth in this category as well. And you can name through the religions and even atheistic beliefs believe that the only source of truth. Because to believe in a God at all makes you crazy. So for an atheist, the Islamic's wrong, the JW's wrong, the Catholic's wrong, the Mormon's wrong, right? So regardless, there is, there is, truth is exclusive in that sense. And that's a very important, I think, to me, argument because it helps everyone see that in essence, everyone's intolerant. And everyone then, if you want to use our words, is judgmental. See, the issue for why Christians receive the greatest amount of heat and persecution in that claim, I believe, is twofold. One, the way we respond as Christians makes us easy targets. We just looked last week about what love is. 
Love is kind to un evil and ungrateful men and is totally merciful and is forgiving. All right? When you're a Christian and someone that we meet, we're easy targets to be to show hatred and violence and aggression towards because as followers of Jesus, our response is love, mercy, and forgiveness to them. So we don't scare them in terms of a, an opposition. If you come against an Islamic person, they will chop your head off at the at the extreme level, and they will they will go after you, your family. So again, because of physical fear of violence and and, thing, and execution they get left alone so they can make all the claims they want. But see, Christians are easy targets because of the way we've been commanded as followers of Jesus to love. So that's why, one, we are easy targets compared to other faiths. Second one, Paul knows the exactly the same reason in Ephesians. He says, he says, Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the air. The reason why Christians are easy targets is because Satan knows that Christianity is the only source of truth. So because he knows that, he's going to put all of his energy into people coming against us and our belief system. And he's going to spend most of his time targeting us to bring us into discouragement and states of despair and hopelessness. The second defense, though, I would say, besides saying that, besides pointing out to people that every, not only Christianity claims to be exclusive, I would say, I would, my second defense would be this, don't apologize or feel like you're being judgmental for claims of exclusivity. And the reason is, is truth by definition is exclusive. Truth by definition is exclusive. Truth by its very nature is intolerant to other views. It's always restrictive and always narrow. Now here's the crazy thing. The non-Christian people or the other religious people who don't agree in Christianity actually are extremely grateful that this is true in other categories of life. I'll give you an example. Aren't you glad that only your key to your house opens your door? Aren't you glad that nobody else's key can open the door to your house or your car? The truth is, there's only one key that can open your door. It makes no logical sense and doesn't change your emotional commitment to the unfairness in that doesn't change the fact that if you go to a locksmith and ask them to change the, the, your key to someone else's house they're going to do it logically speaking emotionally speaking it doesn't matter how much you kick against the grain they're not going to do that and the world is grateful for that they're grateful that there's that truth is truth that means every other key um, is uh, to every other key then is, is, is a narrow as um impossible and therefore sort of like um, yeah well never mind let's do that <laughs> how about this aren't you glad that the world has identified which liquids are fatal to your children right aren't you glad that you know which ones are poisonous so they don't drink them you don't phone poison control and complain that you think it's unfair that that's truth right Aren't you grateful that 5 plus 5 equals 9? Right? When you go to balance books as a, at the, after the work at the cashier, or you go to your accountant at the end of the year, aren't you glad that you actually can know that the, mathematically there are only truths and everything else is intolerant? It doesn't matter how much emotional commitment you don't want it to be true. Numbers don't lie. Aren't you glad there's only one source of truth in balancing books? Aren't you grateful that there's only one truth at traffic lights? 
that the whole world believes that red is to stop, yellow is to um, speed up, and green is to give her, right? Aren't we glad? Aren't we, aren't we glad for that truth? What if somebody had an emotional commitment and thought it was intolerant that our culture believed that yellow was to do what it was supposed to do and green and red were opposite? I mean, it'd just be total chaos. Aren't you glad that there's only truth, certain uh, truths in, in, amongst surgical practices? That there's things that surgeons will not waver from because it means life or death? Or how about pilots? Aren't you glad that pilots know certain truths in terms of air currents and about uh, how high to keep their nose up when they go down on a runway? Aren't you glad when they're going on a plane with your family and you're going to some place for the holidays that you're glad there's only certain truths they won't waver from? You see, the reality for people is this. Every person in this culture lives by narrow and exclusive standards in every part of their life on a daily basis, and they do not think that's a bad thing. They're grateful for the narrowness and exclusivity of truths. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, all of a sudden, why is that so unreasonable? Well, I'll tell you what it is. The reason why people don't want to accept that is because they want to continue in the life of sin. Because if Jesus' claims is true, that means they're accountable to what Jesus says and what he claimed through the scriptures. And all of a sudden, everyone really knows that their lives aren't going to line up to his teaching and they're going to have to change. Again, so again, you can see this is, I mean, John speaks about this early in this gospel. No one comes to the light because they don't want their sins exposed. And that's why they, people manufacture truth in the spiritual realm so they can justify how they want to live here and now. So hopefully those two um, things will give you some uh, help in, in defending Christianity when Jesus makes those exclusive claims. So let's finish with uh, three lessons. I won't uh, go through them very long because we've already kind of done it through the sermon. But they're, they're simple, and, but, but to the point. They're simple, but they're profound in terms of reality. It would probably help if I used the right controller to change the Okay, that's the number one. For believers, heaven will be all about the presence of Jesus Christ. I know you say, duh, right? Good one. But to be honest, when you think of heaven, is it because you want to escape pain? Because you want to escape the harshness of this world? Because you can't wait to have good food and a perfect lodging? Or do you, as, you, as, our, as our mindsets as Christians truly focused on who we're going to be with when we get there? It's not about your mom, your dad, your uncle, your brother, your sister. Your, like, it's about Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid the ransom for us to get there. And he's the one that we're going to be in total fellowship and communion with. It's about relationship, not real estate. Second lesson. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the hope of heaven would not be a possibility for any human being. Right? That's verse uh, 3. Uh, you know, uh, I, if I were, hadn't, if I, um, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Without Jesus preparing uh, a place for us by going to the cross, dying for our sins, there is no way that we would even have a possibility. And again, this is really important to the context of the disciples. 
They want to hold on to Jesus. They don't want him to go. And he's, he doesn't say it like this, but he's, in essence, he's saying this. Listen, boys, if I don't go, you're, you're going to be basically dead in your tracks. You're going to go to hell. I have to leave you. I have to forsake you. You have to face your greatest fears now because I got to go. I got to go. You have no chance of being in my father's house unless I go ahead of you. So again, words of comfort that they would understand uh, about two months later in Acts. I want to uh, finish now with the third lesson, which is this. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Again, very simple to understand in our church, but try saying that in the world. Try saying that within the Muslim community, in the Mormon community, in the Roman Catholic community. It is, it is you know, it, we are going to have to be prepared for how to give a defense to that question.